Hi, Adami here. Welcome back, everybody, to On The Tape. I'm here with my dear friends, Danny Moses and Dan Nathan. On The Tape this week, we're going to talk about the run-up in the cannabis stocks. Oh, my God. I know Danny has some thoughts on that. What a Virtu and the New York Stock Exchange have in common. And later, we're going to go off the tape with Meltem Demirers and Brian Kelly to talk about the incredible run in cryptocurrencies. And oh, by the way, we're going to talk about Danny Moses' run-in with the next Pit Panther. But first, Dan Nathan, I know you have some thoughts on things going forward. Oh, yeah, yeah. First, we got to get to that Pit Panther situation. You know, the people on the other side of this thing, you know, a lot of work goes into this. The three of us spend a lot of time. We have this extraordinary young man named Spencer, who is our producer, spends a lot of time keeping us in line here. So Danny and I are talking over text on Sunday. We're kind of preparing for that special bonus pod that we dropped on Monday with Alex Lieberman and with Victor Jones, which is excellent. If you missed it, go back, listen to it. But, you know, Danny and I are texting. He said, give me a call Sunday afternoon. I give him a call. We're chatting, we're chatting, we're chatting. And then all of a sudden, he goes, hold on a second. All right. I'm like, I'm just sitting here. I'm freezing my butt off up here in New York City. He's down there in FLA. And I hear this big swing. I hear a crack. And then about three or four seconds later, I say here, what a hell of a shot. And then about three or four (laughs) seconds later, the guy's back on the phone with me. And we're talking about the Monday pod here. You know, when I grow up, I want to be. I was out there getting us downloads, spreading the word (laughs) of the podcast, making new friends, making some business connections, you know, hook us up. But, you know, it's just the lay of the land. You do your best work on a golf course. I get it. Yeah, exactly. Danny Moses, I want to hear about your golf game. I mean, legit. Are you any good or do you suck? I am inconsistent, but I'm good. I mean, I'm an 8-7 index. I'm getting normally 10 strokes. For those people out there who don't know, that's my handicap. But I can par Mm -hmm. anything. I can, but I'll also go double bogey. I'm a head case out there. So do you get inside your head? I mean, oh, I'm the you, worst. Are you one yes. of these guys that gets the yips? Like you're seven feet away and you four putt. Yes, I get something called the shanks. I get the yips. I go through. I really should have a psychiatrist with me when I'm out there. For Wait, sure. guy, guy Adami, just so you know, because you probably haven't seen the Big Short the movie in a while. We talked about it with uh, Danny's ex partners last week on the pod, which was amazing. There was a deleted scene. Danny, the, the guy playing Danny during the meltdown in September of '08. <laughs> Danny's on the ground he thinks he's having a heart attack he's yep. sweating like crazy yeah so Go check out the deleted I'm, scenes people i'm good under stress for the most part but certain times it'll get me so that was one of them what i was going to say to you danny was you know they make salves for the shanks in case you thank you exactly I, you right know, maybe there's a pharmacist i could lead you to and you also what happened jimbo covert threatened to kick your ass on the golf course for you that don't know jimbo covert Played at University of Pittsburgh. I think he played with Dan Marino. Correct. And then he played for the Bears for years, and apparently he threatened Danny's life. He did. Well, we were partners on a whole, and I said to him, <laughs> I, go, I really need motivation here on this next shot. He goes, I'll make you a deal. If you don't put that on the green, I'm going to kill you. And he's still 300 pounds. I mean, the guy is he, – and he won a Super Bowl with the Bears. I mean, the guy's you know, a maniac. Yeah, so – Anyway, did. I would was, have loved to. I would have paid to have seen you shaking like a it was leaf all good. on that. Too. That <laughs> it was good. Fantastic. All right. Should we get right. to this? Because we got yeah. so much to do today. Well, I was going to say that was my lead in. Speaking of leafs, what's going on in cannabis? See, Dan, you ruined it for me, but I had the whole thing set up. Speaking of leafs, Danny Moses, cannabis has been on fire this week. That's one thing that's good for shanks. If there's anything that'll calm you down, it's cannabis. So you know, listen, I'll give the Reddit crowd credit years ago because these U.S. cannabis companies really weren't in mainstream. They're still really not in mainstream as far as trading on the exchanges. Retail was really the only people that were buying these stocks. And so there's been fits and starts. But the one constant, the one mistake has been expressing your cannabis trade in Canada. 
Because while the Canadian LPs trade on the U.S. stock exchanges and the U.S. names trade on the Canadian stock exchanges, so they're not as available to U.S. investors, these Canadian names have been trading at a premium for years. And in the last week, up until today, when these stocks were down 30, 20, 30, 50 percent, some of them today, and they're still up 100 percent from where they were a couple weeks ago, these were the names that were heavily shorted. And the Reddit crowd decided to go after these today for the reason that they're short. Now, I'll take that twofold. We are now seeing the market become much more efficient and in tune with the Reddit WSB crowd because whether it's cannabis or something else, it feels to me these short squeezes are more short term than they have been in the past. And we saw a violent move up in the Canadian stocks and down. Now, there was a couple of people out there tweeting today that these U.S. names may have had their run, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think that's the case at all. I've said before, Cresco, Green Thumb. And Silver Spike, which is weed maps, I think are buys here. And the reason they're buys here is it doesn't just think about this for a second. If you're going to use cannabis instead of Ambien, if you're going to use cannabis instead of Prozac, if you're going to use cannabis instead of a painkiller, we aren't even you take small market shares from these drug companies. That's just huge. It's massive, multi-billion dollars. The same thing can be said for CBD. The same thing can be said for, you know, using cannabis for other other reasons. And in lieu of alcohol, make no mistake about it. These U.S. names are here to stay. Yes, there'll be fits and starts. Yes, maybe these stocks have had a big run, but avoid the Canadian names. Short them if you're brave. We stay, stay along the U.S. names, and I've seen that out there this week. Danny, I got to ask you this because, you know, again, I think regular listeners now know that uh, Guy and I met you on the set of Fast Money in 2019, and you were calling cannabis the big long, you know? And at the time, these stocks were down and out. The sentiment was really poor. I think a lot of thoughts about regulation or, you know, or federal, you know, regulation here in the U.S. was not particularly optimistic the way it is right now. But a year prior to us meeting you in 2018, these stocks were game stonk. You know, Tilray went from, what, single digits, a hat size, up to $300 in the summer. It was the massive bubble. And then it just burst and it, it spent the next, you know, year and a half or two just in this sort of purgatory. So can you compare some of the price action that we've seen just in the last couple of weeks in cannabis names to what we saw a couple of years ago? Yeah, again, now there's a lot more ways to express the cannabis trade, even in the U.S. with there's some REITs that trade publicly on the exchanges. You got GrowGem, which trades publicly. So there was a real scarcity value back then just to express a trade in cannabis in general. And if you were a U.S. institution, you had the only way you could express that trade, quote, legally was through these Canadian names. So they were overowned. They weren't as heavily shorted at the time as they are now. And I think people also have set up books to be short the Canadian names and long the U.S. names. Interestingly enough, I should mention, we can't confirm this yet, but it appears that BlackRock invested $100 million yesterday into Green Thumb, GTBIF, if you want to see it in the U.S., that's a seminal event, right? We've seen U.S. institutions start to invest in some of these U.S. names. That's a big deal. So stronger hands you're going into now. The, the run-up we saw also had to do with, with the structure of the shares of Tilray in particular at the time, You know the way that the company was set up with A and B shares, et cetera. So yes, funny enough, if that happened now, I'd be more scared than back then. You didn't feel like you could not not short something, but you couldn't get a bar on Tilray at the time either, Dan, because there weren't enough shares settled out there that you could even get. So now with options trading on these things, you can, can put on a better position, but let, less scarcity value now, better ways to express the trade. And again, I think these Canadian names are way ahead of themselves. Canopy said yesterday that they would be EBITDA positive in the middle of 22. And, you know, stock traded up a ton. We've seen this on other Reddit names. As long as they breathe and speak during the day, whether it was AMC or GameStop or anything, they would shoot up just on the fact that here we are, we're alive. Oh, good. 
look, an excuse to say something. And I'm not saying that they won't make money, but again, it's going to be the adjusted EBITDA number. They took huge write-downs on these acquisitions they've made over the last several years. And let me just say, Canopy is in bed with Constellation Brands, which is great. You know, that, that was a multi-billion dollar deal a couple years ago. And they have other partnerships as well in the U.S. with Acreage, et cetera, which they can close on that transaction. So there are positive things. And Tilray has a medical deal in the U.K., to distribute products. So there are positive things going on, but not reflective in, in these stock prices correctly. And what I was going to ask you, Danny, the move in Tilray this past week, we saw the stock go from 30 to 70, basically, back to 30 in a, basically a three-day period of time. And maybe a few years ago, that would have been seemed the norm. And I understand there's an ARB situation going on here. I don't want to make people's eyes glaze over. But does that set back the industry when we're talking about an industry that's trying to become mature, and then you see moves like this in well-established companies? I think it creates kind of a negative environment on, quote, trading cannabis stocks, but we've already been through this before, and I actually think it's healthy. Get the weak hands out of there. And to your point, Tilray and Afri are merging, and Tilray is going to be the surviving entity. And if you look at the ratio of the deal, it's like a 30% arbitrage right now where that deal is supposed to close on a, on a stock transaction basis. And that just tells you that the smart money is not really there. If you really wanted to set up a trade, these tra- these stocks trade in the U.S. exchanges. You would be shorting Tilray and Golong Afria. That just tells you the people that are trading these don't understand that. And so the answer is, it. I don't think it does anymore because there's enough U.S. names to own and the rules are going to change and these U.S. names are going to be the list on the U.S. exchanges as part of the stuff going to Washington and that's a game changer. Yeah, what's obviously what also was big news this past week was obviously tech stocks and the aggregate, but we also saw news that Microsoft apparently had made advances on Pinterest and they were valuing Pinterest at fifty billion dollars or so. And on Fast Money during the week, Melissa came to me and said, "Do you think Pinterest is worth fifty billion dollars?" I said, "Actually, no. It's worth more. The value, the market cap of the stock closing on Thursday, I think, was fifty-four billion dollars." So. You know, what do you think of those types of things? And I said, listen, if Microsoft wants to do that deal now, it's probably a $75 billion deal. And everybody laughed at Microsoft when they acquired LinkedIn. They couldn't figure that out. And maybe Pinterest does make sense. But I guess my question to Dan Nathan is, you know, you're seeing in a world where valuations seemingly don't matter, the growth in these tech names are still there. I mean, Pinterest is going to see, I think, 70% year-over-year revenue growth. I mean, you don't get that in many places. So maybe it does make sense, Dan, Nathan. Well, you know, listen, at the time, you bring up that LinkedIn um, acquisition that Microsoft made about five years ago at the time. I think it was like $26, $27 billion, and people couldn't really see it. But if you could have, looking back now, and you think about their move with Office 365 and the move to the cloud, this was a very interesting asset for them to tie it together. You know, interestingly, I suspect Microsoft was talking to Pinterest when the stock was much lower. You know, the idea of a $50, $60, $70 billion deal that would be equal to their net cash is probably not something that Microsoft shareholders would be so down with, especially it wouldn't be a part of their kind of core enterprise-driven strategy, if you will. Um, You know, there was also this one, and we've been talking about this for a while, you know, there was going to be this forced sale of TikTok to Walmart and Oracle. This was the Trump administration forcing that last year. Guy and I on Fast Money on numerous occasions probably said that is never going to happen. What's interesting, though, to me, 
what are we talking about? We're talking about Microsoft. We're talking about Walmart. We're talking about Oracle. These are not companies that are like literally in the guise of regulators right now. So we didn't mention Amazon. We didn't mention Alphabet. We didn't mention, you know, Apple, Facebook, that sort of thing, because we know they can't make these sorts of acquisitions. So if you're Microsoft or Oracle or Walmart, you might have the opportunity to do these. But to your point, Guy, the valuations have gotten crazy, you know. And when I think about Pinterest, a $54 billion market cap, Twitter's got about a $55 billion market cap. Snap, quietly, Snapchat has a $94 billion market cap. Those three companies, $200 billion in market cap. But here's the kicker, guys. Less than $10 billion in expected sales this year, okay? Facebook and Google, which dominate online ad sales, have about $200 billion in annual sales. So it just doesn't make any sense. Where I'll just say this, though, what I think is going to happen in this space, I think maybe the regulators focus a little bit on the big names, but then maybe you have an opportunity if you are a Twitter or you are a Snap or you are a Pinterest to actually not be acquired, but be the acquirer. Okay, so there's some really cool things out there right now. There's Clubhouse, which just got a billion dollar valuation. Andreessen Horowitz led the last round that thing is growing like a weed we're going to do a with the three of us got to do a clubhouse and maybe we'll bring spencer we'll bring young spencer on there because spencer is going to be the one who's going to show us how the kids are doing things today but you know twitter launched their beta version of clubhouse spaces so i think you might see some really cool acquisitions by some of these guys who are able to now use their currency who might be able to kind of get under these regulatory sort of barriers because they are the ones now kind of trying to pick up against a facebook or an amazon or something like that yeah i'm not looking to name drop here it's not how i wait for it it's not how i roll but saturday night i was in my wife's office and she was doing some work it was probably around 10 o'clock or so. And Dan Nathan had asked me to download this application called Clubhouse, which I did. And a few minutes later, I'm, I hear a voice and it's John Ledger, the founder and former CEO of T-Mobile, asking me drop. what's going on. And we just start chatting on the Clubhouse application. And to Dan's point, this thing is going to take off. And I thought it was fascinating that you have that kind of access that quick a time. And then you can attract the kind of audience that a name like that would attract. Anyway, I thought I'd just throw that in anecdotally, Dan Nathan. What do you think about that? I love it. We're going to do a no, clubhouse. No, you don't care. You don't Danny, care. I want, I want Danny to weigh in here for a second because it's interesting. So major M&A in tech might be off the table for a while, but you know we're seeing a ton of M&A in the SPAC space. This is something that you've been kind of vocal about. And you know normally a lot of these big tech companies like a Google or a Microsoft, they do, mass, they do massive amounts of tuck-ins, of little acquisitions. Some people call them acqui-hires, that sort of thing. Are they competing now with all these SPACs? It seems like that. And just to your earlier point, if you're a tech company that's public, yeah, maybe your stock's expensive. And being expensive is never a great short theme anyway, right? Just because these are great companies. They should be using their currency to go buy these tuck-in acquisitions. That's exactly what all these, quote, expensive companies should be doing. And yes, everyone's now competing with everybody. I mean, private equity is looking at some of their assets and saying, great, let's get this thing out of here to a SPAC to a degree. But yeah, they are competing because there's there are dollars now chasing too many dollars chasing too few assets. I think it's really fascinating, though, that some of these companies that when they were private and a lot of people might have been using their services but not thinking about what the valuations were like. And I'll just throw the names out there. There's Uber and Lyft and there's DoorDash and there's Airbnb. You're right. All these great transformative services. Now that they're in the public markets, these are massive, massive market caps. And to your point about using your currency, Uber just bought the liquor delivery company Drizzly, you know, for like a billion reportedly, that sort of thing. You know, Lyft is 
a company that's just focused on only North American rideshare. They don't have the, the the food delivery and all that sort of stuff. I'll bet you you see some M&A around there. Lyft is going to get taken out. Lyft is going to get taken out by somebody who wants all the data that they have had by doing, you know, the, the rideshare sort of thing for somebody who wants to get an autonomous. You know, the one thing I think it was Victor Jones that said on our on our call we had about the millennial investor, and I think it was a great point. There's stories here, right? They like to trade stories. And I think that the whole millennial generation is experiencing these things differently than we did. They only know these services, so they're comfortable with them. And somehow that translates into being comfortable with their business plan. Comfortable, I don't think they're necessarily looking at earnings per share and cash flow per share and valuation, but it, it's really immersed in the culture. And I think these are culture stocks now. And I think that's just the way it's going to be. And that's this generation's choice. All right, but Danny, can I ask you a question? What changed? You know, Snap um, went public in 2017. Uber and Lyft went public in 2019. They had horrible debuts. They had massive, massive demand on the IPOs. And then these stocks were, and Pinterest, they were in purgatory. So what happened in the last year? Is it that their services, they saw a massive acceleration and adoption of their service and then interest rates going to zero. And then now there's going to be massive pent up demand and the post-pandemic, because it's just interesting. Now people don't care about valuation and they really don't care about some of those traditional growth metrics that people were focused on prior. And I would have thought that in 2019, when WeWork just imploded, that that might have been a sea change for private to public valuations for non-profitable companies. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think at least two of those three you mentioned had major shakeups in management and they were able to actually learn on the fly. And I go back to the Netflix three or four years ago, whenever that, maybe even more now, when they decided to change their entire business model. And I just, it was a subscription picking up discs at stores and it went to this streaming business. I'm like, wow, this is really bold. They changed their whole pricing model. I didn't know if it was going to work. I didn't think it was going to work, but I give them credit for switching on the fly. And a lot of these companies, because the macro has been so strong, has been, has been able to do this. Speaking of stories, when I worked on the New York Mercantile Exchange in the 80s, one of the legends down there was a guy named Vinny Viola, which I don't expect any of our listeners to know, but he actually is one of the part owners of the Florida Panthers, the other hockey team in Florida. And he's also the founder of a company called Virtu Financial. And we teased that in our open, but Danny has some thoughts in terms of what's going on there with their earnings release and their seemingly shying away from success and how it all ties into New York Stock Exchange and what's going on in that world, Danny. They actually reported earnings this morning. Not surprisingly, they crushed it. Stock traded down, I think, just it sell on the news type event. But of all the companies that are involved in the, quote, payment for order flow space, this is the only one that's public. Citadel's not public. Two Sigma's not public. Susquehanna's not public. Susquehanna, obviously, much bigger in the options. And it's almost like they quietly reported today. And their net in, net trading income per day is $9 million. And they're not doing anything illegal. They're living off the payment for order flow business. They were asked the question on the call today. They said, we don't see a problem with it. We are giving people better execution, blah, 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 you know, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The guidance they gave to the street for the year ranges from $2.15 to $4.88. And that's based on a range of $5 million per day of net trading income to $8 million per day of net trading income. So you can take that. I think they don't want to basically boast about what's going on. And they have an amazing business model. They bought Knight. They bought ITG a couple years ago. So credit to them. But if you want to see the poster child for success of who's winning in this game, it's them, for better or for worse. And you also made reference to the fact that the New York Stock Exchange and some of these taxes or levies or whatever word you want to use, we're talking about ground change or basically business changing 
regulation that seems to be coming down the pipe that nobody's talking about. Maybe we should be talking about, Danny. One of my big fears is that Washington, out of these hearings in a couple of weeks, will either put on a, a trading tax. The state of New York was talking about a stock transfer tax and things like that. That would, I don't think that's a very smart move. And these companies now, because it is pretty virtual, can get up and leave. Um, there's no floor anymore, really, right? There's no physical presence like there has been in the past. So that threat is real. And let me tell you, I've been down in Florida for the last few months, as you know. Companies are moving here anyway. Don't give them an excuse to all come down here. So I read the op-ed from Stacey Cunningham. Doug Sifu mentioned it today on the call. I'm sure that will give enough pushback that the state of New York should go back and rewrite that or rethink that. So it's a big issue for sure. But you also think about the effects that it has potentially on the real estate market. I mean, the trickle-down effects to all these different things that we talk about are huge. Nobody seems to be bringing them up. Obviously, the real estate trade, the housing trade has been on fire, but you wonder, you know, how secure is the foundation that a lot of these stocks are built on? And I would submit maybe they're only as secure as the 10-year yield, which we'll talk about in another time, Dan, Nathan, because I know your eyes are glazing over. You don't want me to hear wax poetic about the 10-year bond and how it's going to be the existential risk to the market. Well, I'm actually super excited about our guests here. I, you know, the, when we're talking about a lot of manias going on, there just seems to be a, a general euphoric um, mindset for risk assets at the moment here. And I think that, you know, while we talk about the stock market, bond markets, and related markets, you know, Bitcoin is is just kind of crypto in general is seeping its way into the stock market. Many of the names that we discuss all the time, and it's not just the Square and the PayPal. And, you know, we're starting to see major announcements from Bank of New York Mellon about custody for institutions. Tesla put Bitcoin this week on their balance sheet or they announced it this week. And then we're seeing Visa and MasterCard, massive payment processors, setting up processes for their clients, you know, to transact in it or service customers who want to use Bitcoin. So pretty fascinating stuff here. Bitcoin, you know, traded as high as 48,000 this week. We were talking about a massive technology breakout just a couple months ago at 20,000, which was the all-time high, the prior all-time high from late 2017. So I'm really excited about our guests um, coming up in the conversation. Hopefully it'll be a bit punchy. When we come back, we're going to go off the tape with two of crypto's legendary ballers, BK, the original baller, Brian Kelly, and Meltem Demirs. We'll be right back. Welcome back to On the Tape, folks. Now we're going off the tape, and we have two extraordinarily special guests, and this is a very timely. We have Meltem Demirs. She likes Bitcoin. She likes sci-fi. And talking with her hands, which unfortunately in this podcast you can't see, but I've seen it firsthand. She's an executive at CoinShares, a digital asset investment firm with $4 billion, with a B, dollars in assets under management. She's invested in over 250 companies in the cryptocurrency space in the last six years. Prior to CoinShares, she helped build Digital Currency Group into the world's largest digital investment firm. She got the Bitcoin bug a while ago, but she's an oil and gas expert. Welcome and congratulations. And you are a Bitcoin badass. But we have one of the original OGs, and that's our dear friend, uh, Brian Kelly, the founder and CEO of BKCM LLC, an investment firm specializing in digital currencies and the portfolio manager for the BKCM Digital Asset Fund, early investor in Bitcoin. And he literally wrote the book on cryptocurrency, releasing the Bitcoin BitBang, how alternative currencies are about to change the world in 2014. I mean, he's been added to every thought leadership group, 30 under 30, 50 over 50. 
I mean, BK is the Bitcoin baller. Welcome to you both. And BK, I want to start with you, if that's okay. Yeah, please. Six, seven years ago, when we talked on Fast Money, and when I didn't understand this, and I still don't really understand it, but you used to talk about there'll be a day when it's Bitcoin cryptocurrency is accepted by institutions. Well, we've seen that over the last couple of years. And then you used to say it'll be an acceptance in corporates. And obviously, we've seen that in spades, not over the last couple of months, but the last week, Bank of New York Mellon, MasterCard, MicroStrategies, Tesla, you know the story, BK. Is this what you envisioned exactly seven or eight years ago? I Yeah, it's exactly what I envisioned to the letter. No, I'm just kidding. No, I mean, in general, it's what the investment thesis was, is that you have this new asset class and that if and when it catches on, you can start to predict who are going to be the players in it. And you have kind of this life cycle of Bitcoin where Back in, you know, let's call it 2012 or before it was kind of a startup type of thing, like a venture capital thing. Then it kind of moved into this growth phase with a lot of speculation during 2016, 2017. And now here we are and it's looking a lot like a commodity and you're seeing, you know, mass mutual fidelity, everybody that you mentioned get into it as a store of value, the so-called digital gold narrative. And then today, just today with MasterCard, we start to move towards the currency side of it. And so, you know, you, can, you can't really predict who's going to be involved. But now that we're on this kind of growth curve and we're moving towards the currency side, you can start to expect to see, and this is, this is probably three to five years away, but you can expect to see people transact in this. And the one thing I would look for as really kind of the sign that we're switching from this digital gold commodity to a currency is look for a lot of these companies to use it in their supply chain. Once you start to see that, then it's a transactional currency. Meltem, you could have taken a very traditional path, given your background, oil and gas, MIT grad. You could have done very well, extraordinarily, in what's a very traditional space. Yet you choose to pivot to this world. And obviously, it was a fantastic choice. Congratulations. But what did you see that nobody else saw years ago? I ask myself this all the time. I did take a very traditional path and the path I was on was, you know, I was working in corporate treasury at ExxonMobil, largest corporation in the world back in those days, no longer the case. When I started interacting with Bitcoin in 2013 and then in 2015, when I left grad school at MIT and decided to join Barry to work on this idea um, of digital currency group, really what I saw was was three things. Number one, having interacted with Bitcoin, my family's from Turkey. I've grown up all over the world. I now live in the US. I had never really thought about how political money is. Being a US citizen, you know, having a, a bank account at JP Morgan Chase, I have never experienced financial censorship. And when I started using Bitcoin, I started using it because I was trying to interact with people who didn't have access to the banking system. They didn't have access to dollar-denominated savings or checking accounts. And I started to really understand how inherently political money is and how important Bitcoin would be in the evolution of the way that society conceptualizes and uses and and creates monetary values. So that was one. Uh, The second was coming from the commodity space. When I looked at Bitcoin and the supply demand features of Bitcoin, as BK alluded to, there are just so many characteristics of Bitcoin that actually intersect directly with energy. I think Bitcoin will be the greatest accelerant for the development of renewables and nuclear energy that the world has ever seen, because Bitcoin is a money battery, just like gold allowed us to move value 
value over fast distances of both space and time. Bitcoin is sort of the next iteration of this. Bitcoin is a digital store of value and a digital medium of exchange that allows us to transport value over tremendous distances of both space and time. And that's fundamentally exciting to me as an energy economics geek. And then the last thing, I wanted to have fun in my career. The people I interacted with in the Bitcoin space, you know, VK and I met in 2015, the entrepreneurs I was interacting with, they were the types of people who, yes, they're driven by, you know, building great business. Everyone wants to make money. But more importantly, I do think there's a strong underlying ethos here. It's the principles first driven movement. And Bitcoin really was at that time a social movement. I think in many ways it still is. Even if you look at the way that Ray Dalio or Bill Miller or Paul Tudor Jones speak about Bitcoin, there are principles that are being expressed. There are principles about monetary policy around philosophy that are in inherent to sort of what Bitcoin is and how it functions. And so that, you know, I think about what I want to spend the next 50, 100 years of my life doing, I ought to work on that. That's cool. <laughs> Guys, thanks for coming on today. Just a couple of questions. Philosophically speaking, there's a finite amount of Bitcoins that are out there on the ledger, right? Meltem, you've actually tracked the fund flows and we've seen when retail kind of sells in the weak hands, it goes into the strong hands of the institutions. That's going to keep going. Is there an amount, and we'll just measure it in dollar amount since that's how Bitcoin you know, is measured on the ledger, what, what size this market is. Is there an amount where it goes up to that it becomes non-economic or from an application perspective? And also, are you concerned just with all these other coins which are piggybacking on the doge of, of the world out there? It helps hit the credibility of the sector in general. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I can start and then BK, I'll pass it to you. So in terms of Bitcoin, what's really interesting, um, and I think a lot of people don't realize, unlike a share of, of stock or a contract where you buy in integer units, Bitcoins are divisible to the eighth decimal point. And the smallest unit of Bitcoin called a Satoshi. Right now, a Satoshi is worth two tenths of a cent. So it's a teeny tiny amount of Bitcoin. And so I think one of the important shifts that we're sort of going through is everyone kind of thinks about Bitcoin. And they're like, oh my gosh, $47,000. I can't buy a whole Bitcoin. The great thing is you can buy $5 Bitcoin. You can buy $10 of it. And there are a lot of really cool innovations happening with micropayments on top of Bitcoin via something called Lightning Network. It's kind of like a layer on top of the Bitcoin network. You can almost think of it, you know, there's Fedwire, which is used for high value transactions within the correspondent banking system. And then on top of that, you have Visa and MasterCard and ACH and all of these other payment networks. So there's all of this extensibility that's being built on top of Bitcoin that makes it much easier easier to send really, really small amounts of Bitcoin worth really small amounts of dollars really quickly, really easily for basically free, like very, very tiny transaction fees. So as use of Bitcoin in a medium of exchange sort of use case continues to increase, that technology is also advancing really rapidly. And I've invested in a, a lot of companies that are building this extensibility and this payment layer on top of Bitcoin. To the second question, I think one of the things that's been interesting to observe around flows, you know, right now we're living in a very interesting time in capital markets generally. Meme stocks <laughs> are obviously a big trend. Uh, we, we, we could have a whole separate podcast about this. And meme coins, I view them very similar to meme stocks. I do think one of the things that was really appealing to retail investors about Doge was the fact that it was quote unquote cheap. And so it's kind of like people who like buying penny stocks or things that are low value. They can buy a lot of units at a very low 
price. And when you look at Bitcoin at $47,000 and Dogecoin at, you know, two tenths of a, a cent, again, Dogecoin looks really attractive. So I think part of it here is really investor psychology and some of the interesting trends we're seeing in how TikTok and Reddit and other sort of social media platforms are driving behavior. Does it harm the credibility of the space? And I don't believe so. I mean, I'm never going to go on TV. BK is never going to go on TV and advocate for people buying Dogecoin. I think people are having fun. Finance has historically been a not fun sector, but I think we're now entering an era where financial media is entertainment, right? We saw this with Davy Day Trader. We did, we didn't. I mean, like, so, you know, we've been all in the markets for a long time and and, and fun um, is usually can be figured out after the fact here because, you know, investing is hard. Trading is hard. Um, you know, it's interesting you mentioned the term, uh, Melton, credibility. And I kind of want to throw this to BK a little bit. You know, in the same week that Elon Musk puts Bitcoin, you know, on his company's balance sheet, he's also doing this meme fun stuff with this Dogecoin. And so to me, I, I think it really hurts the credibility, you know, for, for people like you who've been advocating for this sort of uh, corporate behavior for some time to have the richest man in the world, you know, having too much fun with something that, you know, Bitcoin might be real, but Dogecoin is not likely real. Is that fair to say? And does it hurt the credibility of this? And you guys tell me. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I guess, you know, it depends what perspective you're coming from, right? So what I've always said from the beginning is that if you're a boomer, you buy gold and that's real serious and you wear a suit when you go and you buy it. And Guy Adama used to get all knotted up and wear a suit when he would trade gold back in the 80s. And if you're a millennial or younger, you buy Bitcoin. And so it's a different investment thesis. And we call them memes or memes or whatever the youngsters are calling them today. But it's no different than the narrative that Wall Street's been telling for years. You know, narrative and memes are the same thing, you know, and it, it's just a different way of presenting it. So, yeah, I mean, listen, would, would I prefer that, you know, Dogecoin was not necessarily front and center because of Elon Musk? Sure. But I don't think it takes away from Bitcoin. I think if you look at Bitcoin, people understand that it's network effect. It's digital gold. It's got a huge lead on this network effect. And if you want to store value, that's where you go. If you want to trade, try Dogecoin, knock yourself out. But BK, why could Dogecoin become a huge competitor to Bitcoin if enough of these billionaire influencers or whatever you want to call them get behind that one, right? I mean, so you talk about if network effects is really the secret sauce here, isn't it something that could be easily colludable? Uh, no, I don't think it, it's definitely not easily copyable. I mean, look at Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat. There's not Facebook too. There's not Twitter too. So no, in terms of once you have that network effect lead, you know, history would suggest that you actually Actually keep that. That being said, you could say the same thing about any currency in the world. I mean, if all the billionaires got around and decided to buy the Turkish lira, the thing would go straight up and they no longer wanted the US dollar. But wait, Dan, I want to ask you a question, right? Yeah. So you've uh -oh. gotten blasted recently by the Bitcoin community. And I was sent here with a mission, which is to really try to get to the bottom of like, what is going on inside your brain? So you made a, you used <laughs> a word that. just now that I thought was really interesting. And I would love to ask you, when you said, is Dogecoin real? What do you mean by real? Is Nikola a real company? Absolutely not. Nikola hasn't made a single electric car yet. It's a multi-billion dollar company. So what do you mean by the word real? 
Well, I guess the point is, why does it exist, right? If it exists to have fun on the internet with memes and push some populist narrative, then that's fine. But I think it's really important to remember that there's real money behind it, right? And so to me, you guys are trying to tell me that Bitcoin is real, that it was this real store of value, that there's scarcity, that it's much easily transactable than, let's say- But but Dan, hold on. But here's my question, okay? Five years ago when BK and I were walking around Midtown New York trying to talk to anyone who would listen about Bitcoin- Nobody thought Bitcoin was real. Yeah. Yeah. And I met I met you through BK and, and I actually helped Credit Suisse put on the first Bitcoin conference in 2017 in October um, when, when, when Bitcoin just crossed 5,000 for the first time. You guys both spoke at it. Novograd spoke at it. it. You know, CNBC covered it. I thought it was a fascinating thing. BK twisted my arm. I bought a Bitcoin at $1,700 in 2017. I'm all in. It's been an amazing ride on these things. I just don't know. I guess my point is I'm not here to tell you you're wrong. I'm not here to tell you that the people um, buying it are wrong. I'm just telling you that I don't like manias. And what's going on right now is a mania. What went on in 2017 was a retail-led mania. And we saw Bitcoin go from 20,000 to what? Where did it go? Now, you guys will tell me that the institutional adoption and all the rails that have been put in place, and it's different this time. I'm just saying there's a mania right now, whether you know it or not, right? Right, But Dan, but what I'm asking you is, how is this mania? So in last year, 2020, Bitcoin went up 300%. Tesla over the same period of time went up 750%. Are you asking if Tesla is real? You're not because you've accepted, you come from a world where you look at companies and commodities and assets a very different way. What makes Bitcoin or digital currencies any less real than all these companies out there that are trading at 1200x PE multiples? Let me just say, first of all, let's not forget these ICOs that came out Let's talk about Ripple, which is ruining the credibility, I think. You know, it's, it depends how the SEC recognizes these things, how they try to monitor. And I think Dan's point is protecting the U.S. investor, the U.S. consumer. I don't think Tesla's worth a billion dollars, but that, that's just me. But they have a product. It's tangible. There's a balance sheet. It's regulated. You have, you know, as much as they can be regulated. So not to attack you or defend Dan at the same time, but I think the consumer's brain, and I think, Meltem, that's why you and BK have been so far ahead of this, is people can make the leap of faith and jump to the next thing. What we're trying to figure out is from a regulatory perspective, why I'm still settling in dollars when I'm going in Bitcoin. Why? So there is a hypocrisy, I feel like, a little bit. And I'm not, I, I like Bitcoin. I'm not saying it's 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 not going to be here to stay. What I'm saying is that it's a hard leap of faith for many people, which is why there's probably still a huge opportunity here in the sector to to get there. That's all. You know, you're talking about First of all, Bitcoin is regulated. It's regulated via the banks, via how you get the on-ramps into it. So, you know, the same rules apply. And I think, you know, if you look at Bitcoin and say it's unregulated, there's no rules, it's just not true. If you break the law with Bitcoin, you're going to jail, whether you like it or not. But you made a point earlier, Danny, like, you know, can, how big can this thing get? And is it, and, and to Dan's point on a mania, let me, let me separate two things. One, Dan's point on a mania. And then two, how big can this thing get? I actually agree with Dan. Like Bitcoin fixes a lot of things. It doesn't fix fear and greed. It doesn't fix human, human greed. And, you know, maybe we're seeing that right now. And maybe, maybe we're in this bubble. But the question is, you know, where, where's the investment opportunity? How big this can get? And I think the biggest mistake people make is comparing Bitcoin to a company and saying Tesla's worth this or uh, Apple's worth this. And how can Bitcoin be worth this? You never say somebody, somebody say, well, you know, Apple's worth a couple trillion dollars. Well, then why is gold worth 10 trillion? That doesn't make sense. Gold doesn't make any money. 
The thing about currencies is they have to grow to a certain size to service their underlying economy. You can't do a billion dollar transaction with a currency that's worth $50 million. So it's very, very different than a company. And I think that's where the investor gets caught up in this trap of all oh, this thing's overvalued and this thing's going to be a bubble. It very well may be a bubble, but there's a reason why this thing is growing to the size that it's growing. So let me come back to Melton for a second here, because I, I, again, I'm not thinking about any of these as currencies. I'm kind of keying off a little bit of what Danny just said with the ICOs and a, a lot of these these tokens out there. So Melton, I would just say is that, you know, we're seeing people not invest in them for the reasons that you think, you know, that, that this is this amazing diversification from failing fiat currencies. They are looking at them, though, you know, and I know we're going to talk about DeFi and stuff like that. They're looking at them as startup companies for to invest in. Really, they're thinking about them in a, in a portfolio sense. If you were talking about this Robinhood Reddit crowd, you know, they're not in it for the same reasons that you guys are in it. They're in it because they think they can make money. Okay. I think, first of all, I think that's incredibly judgmental. And I'm going to go ahead and, and tell you that. Okay. Look, I have a bunch of friends who they trade meme stocks. They trade a lot of things. But if I'm a millennial, I'm 34 years old. I'm getting effed on one end by my own government. The only thing political parties have in common is they will screw future generations at any and all costs. So I'm sitting here. I'm 34 years old. I live in New York City. My taxes go up every single year. My ability to save and accrue wealth goes down every single year. I am getting poor year after year after year after year. So what are my options, right? What are my options? What are my alternatives for creating wealth? So people are engaging in speculative trading. I have always held the belief, and this kind of starts to go into the DeFi space, capital markets are the ultimate game. You look at any game, what is the most popular place in any game? It's the marketplace, right? Capital markets are the ultimate game. And what's basically happened this year is a bunch of people online have realized wait a minute, instead of these guys in suits on Wall Street having all this fun and creating all this wealth, I can do it too. So I actually think, yes, there are things about it that are negative, but at the same time, I do think it's a bit judgmental and elitist to say that retail traders are fueled by speculative mania when hedge funders and people on the street have been doing the same thing for, for years. Like you can, we can talk about, you know, fundamentals and how people are looking at things. But at the end of the day, we live in a number go up environment and young people and people who are sitting at home watching their savings, their livelihoods get absolutely destroyed. They're not going to sit by idly. So I think Bitcoin is a peaceful protest against the existing monetary system, against the existing financial system. I'm so excited about it. There's no IR department. There are millions of people around the world who own Bitcoin, are interested in Bitcoin, and we're out there every single day evangelizing, educating, producing high-quality research. There are no executives. All we have is a group of people who believe in a very different reality than the one we live in today. And over the last 10 years, we have memed that reality into existence. Whether it's funny, whether it's real or not, whether it's subjectively meritless or has merit, like that's highly, highly personal. You know, I think one of the biggest misconceptions we have is that value is absolute. We have learned that value is relative. And there are a bunch of people around the world who are saying, I believe that Bitcoin is the future of money. And they're putting their capital where their mouth is. I am one of those people. I am 100%. I will stand behind this all day, every day. And at the end of the day, like this is a challenge to the existing establishment 
we can create a new monetary system. We are doing it in real time. And there are millions of people around the world who've dedicated their careers, their livelihood, their capital, their, their energy um, to making that happen. And that is one of the most powerful forces on this planet. Yeah. So, so Meltem, I, I, you know, I, I don't mean to offend BK and I talk about this stuff a lot. I think you would be surprised. I agree with almost everything that you said, you know, I'm not really coming at Bitcoin. I'm really talking about a specific mania. And if we're talking about memes and meme stocks, that sort of thing, I think when the dust settles from this GameStop situation over the last month or so, I think we're going to find that very few retail people made money in that. And it was going to be institutions. But they weren't in it to make money. If you go on Wall Street Bets, the reason people were in it, their parents, got fucked in 2009. Excuse my language. This is personal for people. No, I, I they are not going to lie down and take it anymore. And again, well, they're going to lie. Think- they're going to have to lie down and take it if they're broke, doing this again and again and again. I mean, that that's the sad part about it. That's the my option only is, point. Dan, they're already broke. That's the thing. They have nothing left to lose because the dollar is being printed into oblivion, right? So it's like right. Well, we're, we're conflating two things because <laughs> we're, we're, we're conflating two things. I, I, I get it and I get the, the Bitcoin movement. I don't get Dogecoin. OK, how's that? And I'm going to send it back to Guy Adami here. No, you know, it's interesting. And I think we could do an hour on this. But I think I think what Dan is talking about are some of the hucksters out there, some of the charlatans that are trying to get rich on the back of the hard work that you both did and many other people did as well. But it's another conversation. BK, I want to come to you because Meltem said something that I think hits exactly the right point. The fact that the dollar is being printed into oblivion. And in August of last year, Michael Saylor from MicroStrategies invested $250 million. As a matter of fact, he did a secondary offering of his stock and bought $250 million worth of Bitcoin, which let's just ballpark it. At the time, Bitcoin was probably, let's say, 17, 18,000 or so. I'm probably off, but you get my gist. His stock was trading around $170. From that point, with that quarter of a billion dollar investment in basically a bet against these fiat currencies that we talk about all the time, his stock has gone up more than tenfold and Bitcoin has doubled. So my question to you, BK, is not whether he should have done that. I think it's a brilliant move, by the way. And I think as we're seeing, more and more companies are going to adapt that. But now that company is exponentially tethered to the price of Bitcoin. Why do I say that? Because to my point, over that time, Bitcoin has effectively doubled. His stock has gone up tenfold. And this week, we saw on a small, re- relatively benign move to the downside in Bitcoin, micro strategies went down 24%. And my, I guess my question is, do companies need to accept if they're going to go down this road that that's the path they've chosen and that's the type of moves they're going to see, BK? So it's a great question, Guy. I mean, a couple different things. Let's think about what happened last August. That was the Federal Reserve's Jackson Hole meeting where they told everybody that we are going to print money ad nauseum, if you will. And I can tell you the week after that Jackson Hole meeting, I got more calls from not just CEOs, Wall Street executives, everybody who's kind of always said, I don't know if I like this. That was a watershed event when the Federal Reserve said, we are going to continue to print until the until the beatings uh, stop hurting, right? And so that's that point. On the microstrategy point, I think you're right. You know, I think, and I've talked to some CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, and, you know, the one thing that they're concerned about is if I put Bitcoin on my balance sheet, do I now become a Bitcoin company as opposed to, I don't know, a chemical company or a health and beauty products company? Is that how the market and my shareholders start to look at me? And so I think the early adopters are going to have to deal with that 
type of stigma, volatility. There's no question about that. It's also why I think, you know, like Tesla bought a whole bunch of Bitcoin and everybody asked me, well, is every S&P 500 company going to do it? My view is, I don't think so. It makes sense if you're a tech company because you're already kind of on the leading edge of all of this stuff. It makes sense if ultimately you are going to use it in your supply chain. We're not there yet. But if you're just simply buying Bitcoin as a hedge against inflation, then you are going to suffer or benefit both from the volatility of Bitcoin here. I want to ask BK a question, though. I actually think so. When I was in corporate treasury, I traded overnight rates and I made 2.5 to 3% a year just trading overnights, right? Effectively riskless and cash equivalent. As a corporate treasurer, right? 25% of sovereign debt is negative yielding. Treasuries are effectively at zero. How am I diversifying my portfolio and how am I protecting my purchasing power parity of the dollars that I have sitting in the bank? Our research at CoinShares, I actually wrote a great piece called QE Dystopia and Corporate Adoption of Bitcoin. And the reason we called it this is if you're a corporate treasurer and you're sitting here looking at the slate of options that are available to you, how are you going to diversify your treasury? How are you going to manage the assets in your por- portfolio? So listen, I, I don't, I, I mean, you know me, I think, I do think that corporate treasury should diversify into it, but it's not the decision, that, at least from the people that I'm talking to is not, hey, I've got all this negative yielding debt. What are my other investment options? And if, listen, if they bought gold, nobody would bat an eye. But when you buy Bitcoin, people go, oh, wait a second, just because it's new, just because it's something that we don't all understand yet. And it's still, it's, you know, it's 10 years old, right? So th- I think that's the difference here is that, if you buy Bitcoin, you bring to your business some, stigma is not the right word, but you bring some different point of view and CEOs wonder, okay, what are my shareholders? What is Fidelity and Putnam and all of those going to think about it? The question is, right, what are the EV multiples that you get if you announce an allocation to Bitcoin? I think the jury's still out on that, but I'm optimistic on the idea that as people add exposure to Bitcoin in their treasury, even if it's small single-digit percentages, I am of the mindset that it will accrue positive EV multiples to companies who choose to do that because it indicates an ability to allocate capital in a prudent and forward-looking manner, right? Like look at core equities that are getting decimated. These are like traditional boomer stocks. Like my dad trades this stuff. My mom, she's with me on the tech side. So Denise, her portfolio is booming. My dad is in sad, sad person land. Like I do think that being a good fiduciary is important. And I think you have to be forward looking, which is why we see people investing. I agree. But listen, I traded the internet stocks in the nineties, right? And I remember distinctly, there was a period of time that if you announced you had a website, your stock would go up five or 10% that day. Just a website, a splash page that says, you know, Meltem and Company, your stock would go up, right? So that's the stage we are with Bitcoin. You, you love to see it. Balance sheet, <laughs> you put Bitcoin on your balance sheet, you're going to see your stock go up, but you're also going to suffer when it goes down. I'm so sorry. BK and I are basically uncontrollable. You should not let us. <laughs> no, I think that's fantastic. I just want to state that we've seen manias before. And I just want to make a comment. We are all for anyone being able to buy stocks, Bitcoin, digital currencies, whatever they want to do. We're just here to provide basically to to help educate people what they're going to go into. Because you made the point, Meltem, people that wanted to say, you know what, I'm going to own a home. And you know what they did in 2003, 4, and 5? They took out mortgages. They didn't know about the product. They had no idea what they were doing, but they got into their home. It was cheap. And then when it became time to refinance that two to three years later, what happened? They defaulted on their mortgages and they lost their home. And so, yes, it's great to be a part of a movement and be a part of something. But we've seen, you know, 
fits and starts of, of crashes occur in internet stocks and, and housing. And it's still so volatile, Bitcoin, and so new. And I defer to one of the reasons I would never quote short Bitcoin or say anything negative. There was too many smart people looking at over the last, including yourselves, over the last several years watching this thing develop. But from to put it on a corporate treasury, to put it on your balance sheet right now as a company that has a real board, unlike Tesla, that has that is paying cash dividends, it really has to go through a process and to your point, Meltem, and you can talk to this, now that there's a futures market, like in oil, when oil companies would buy futures to hedge future production, et cetera, we aren't at the point yet where I think companies are willing to have their stock trade based on the price of Bitcoin versus the price of the product and the gross margin of what they're selling. I don't dis disagree that it shouldn't be a part of the recipe of these companies going forward in business, but we're still a ways away. And that's probably a good thing because you're going to have a long run here. But I, just, I have to make that comment. But but look, I think what we have to separate here is cyclical trends from a secular trend, right? In 2000, in 1999 and 2000, people didn't know if they were buying pets.com or amazon.com, right? And I think that's the point BK is making. People were like, oh my God, .com? Yes, I'm, I'm all in. And that's a mania, right? And so there was a cyclical trend there. But the secular trend when it comes to internet stocks and technology companies was obviously a 20-year trend that's played out in a very favorable way to people who allocated. So what we're advocating for and what I always advocate for at CoinShares is not that people put all of their net worth into Bitcoin. Our research has indicated that in a traditional 60-40 portfolio, the optimal allocation to Bitcoin is 4%. At a 4% allocation, you achieve optimal risk reward sort of balance and you get the diversification benefits of Bitcoin without being subject to the drastic volatility or, or, or drawdowns of, of Bitcoin. So I just want to make the point that cyclical versus secular are two very different things. And the secular trend in Bitcoin in the seven years that I've been professionally in this industry has been up and, and to the right. And I think that has reason to continue given its commodity features and supply demand schedule. To the financialization of Bitcoin, I think actually, Danny, you raise a really important point. Just last year was the first year that derivatives volume outpaced spot volume in the Bitcoin market. As you know, Monday, CME launched its cash settled Ether uh, derivatives contracts, which I think are an important development in the space. Over the last six months, we've seen trading volume shift from the tether trade pair to the dollar trade pair, which indicates more institutional participation. The CME each month um, is at all time highs in terms of volume. And so I think the growing financialization of Bitcoin and the development of a robust derivatives market that allows people to take uh, directionality, but also deploy um, assets over duration, right? Duration is really important here, is an important part of sort of growing the crypto space. I spend a lot of my time um, at CoinShares investing in and building market microstructure. So we invest in companies that are really involved in sort of trade workflows and, and building this new sort of financial system. And, and really what it is, is reconceptualizing the trade life cycle without brokerages and intermediaries, where you can set, you can trade anything with anyone at any time on any venue, including bilaterally or peer-to-peer -peer and settle anywhere you want and margin how you want, which is really interesting. And then we trade, you know, 2 billion in, in Notional every month on our, our prop desk and on our trading side. Like the amount of volume we're seeing, the level of participation we're seeing, what's now possible is really reminiscent of what happened in the commodities when, uh, you know, commodity trading became digital. Like in 09, I was trading with two phones on each year, right? <laughs> but that world doesn't really exist anymore. My business partners were all floor traders. So, you know, they were doing open outcry in the, in the pit back in the 80s and 90s. That world doesn't exist. I think crypto is slowly starting to evolve as, as well. 
And as that happens, I do think what you'll start to see is more sophisticated strategies being deployed by a variety of different financial institutions. And I, I do think there's an appetite for that. And I do think that we have delta neutral strategies we deploy that are purely based on on trading the forward curve in the market like there's some really attractive opportunities out there a bunch of traditional fund managers who used to trade commodities are now like wait a minute i'm going to get into crypto because the arb here is still huge and there are great opportunities here for people who like trading momentum or risk or vol so meltem you actually you kind of bring up a good point about these other strategies coming in and so you know that's why i think like the MasterCard news today is so ultimately important to crypto because once this gets used as a transactional currency, that volatility is going to go down because you have competing things. All we have now is people who go, I want in, number go up, and you just have buyers. You have very few sellers, right? But eventually you're going to have corporates hedging. You're going to have futures, futures volume increasing. And that's going to make Bitcoin look like a lot more like a reserve currency. It'll probably be boring to people like you and me, Meltem, because it won't be as volatile anymore. You know, volatility junkies won't like it, but it'll actually look like the euro or the British pound or something like that. And that's the really next important step here, which to me, you know, might actually short circus these massive waves of speculation and booms, busts that we've had in Bitcoin, which are great for traders, but maybe, you know, keep people out of the market. Once you get to that currency level, you probably won't have these booms and busts anymore. One of the ironies of MasterCard and Visa getting involved is I've always said, give me an application. Like if it can be the rails of the financial system, if, if Bitcoin can be used on the debit train and the credit train instead, that MasterCard and Visa were vulnerable. I think they've recognized that to a degree and everybody needs to get a seat at the table. And the last thing before I'll turn it back over to Guy is that I think the government, to Melton's point, is scared of it to a degree, and they should be. And I think they were hoping deep down, I'm guessing over the last several years, that this would just kind of blow up and go away. And now it's becoming so big, the digital coin market cap, if you want to call it, it's way too big to ignore. And now with all these companies signing on and doing it, now something's got to be done. I'm a little bit concerned down the line about regulation that, to to your guys' point, the last thing you want to see is U.S. government to try to do anything to regulate. But that's going to unfold. Yeah, so you know it's interesting, Melton. We were talking about before you called me an elitist. Uh, I'm just kidding. I, listen, these guys know me. You know, just so you know, I, I am probably the farthest thing when it comes from that. You know, one of the jobs as as a pundit on CNBC is try to pick holes in what might be a universally bullish thesis. And so for me, you know, I'm happy to play the heel here and there. Um, I, I really do understand what you guys are talking about from a secular standpoint. And I also, you know, coming into the financial markets in 1997, I've seen no shortage of manias. And I will tell you this, that every mania fails and it overcorrects to some point, no matter how smart the people that were in there and who saw the next 25 years happen or whatever, because it's that price and it's that volatility. And that's the thing that's uncontrollable. And just how things overshoot to the upside, they do so to the downside. I'm not telling you there's about to be a crash. I'm not hating on it. I own um, some of this stuff. What, you know, I would just say one other thing is that because of the scarcity value, because there's only 2 million left of Bitcoin, okay, and we're at 19 million, and because supposedly 20% of Bitcoin mined have been lost, they're in, you know, trash heaps in, in, in hard drives or something like that, is this setting up to be the mother of all short squeezes? When you think about who owns it, the concentration of it, now you have corporates coming in in big ways, you have your memes, and I don't mean to be dismissive, I'm sure they're fantastic, but is this thing going to go from 50,000 
to 100,000 like that. And, you know, and I'm not trying to keep anything anybody out of anything. I don't know. I don't have a crystal it ball. Could. But the, but it that, could. Oh. It's still way undervalued. I, here's the thing. First of all, just so we have it on tape, I you know, I will stand behind Dan all day long and twice on Sunday. He is not a no-coiner. Uh, he actually really likes Bitcoin, understands where it fits in the in the economic system. He's been some of the one of the first people on Wall Street to get a major Wall Street bank to host a conference against three, uh, you know, three conferences, three. 17, 18 but on and the 19. First one that you did, Nobody's you not in the Dan fan club. So we're I, all I just, in the Dan fan club here. No, I just have to call him out. The crap online. That's the thing. And, I have to call him out. That's my job. BK, like I'm always <laughs> going to come correct. You know me. You can call me out too. Like it's, it's not personal. I just think it's very important to use words carefully. And the word real to me is like, that's offensive. I got it. Okay. And so, you know what? I misused that word. I just want to make one point because this was Monday on Fast Money. We were talking about Tesla putting, you know, Bitcoin on their balance sheet. The entire panel, including Guy and BK was on there. We we're all like, fantastic. You know what? They bought $1.5 billion worth. It can only go to zero. It might go to a million. Do you know what I'm saying? It might be the best thing that they ever do. And then five minutes later, I go and I say, but make no mistake, there are two manias going on right now. One is Tesla. One is Bitcoin. That's not being dismissive of the companies or why or the companies or that currency, but they've just merged. So understand that the mushroom cloud that might happen, it, it might be something like we've never seen before. That's all I'm so, saying. So for, and then the memes come. Yeah. But for everybody out there, let's just, you know, Adam Smith had it right on the head when he said all currencies are a matter of belief, Right. If we think about it in that sense, Bitcoin is Temple Mount. This is where everybody's fighting about what this is. And it is somewhat of a religion because you do have to believe, but that's the case with any currency. And I will agree with Dan, Bitcoin is not immune to manias. And I think what Dan was talking about is just simple human psychology. But what asset is immune to manias? I think that's the other thing here that's so interesting about Bitcoin. Now, when it comes to capital markets, right, the thing that's really unique about Bitcoin is a quality of opportunity. Anyone anywhere in the world with a mobile phone can interact with Bitcoin, right? And those different platforms are regulated according to the jurisdiction in which they operate and what their business is. If you're operating a Bitcoin exchange in the United States of America, you're regulated like a bank or a brokerage or whatever the facts and circumstances of your business model are. But for the first time ever, anyone anywhere in the world has access to this asset. And Bitcoin is unique because it was a retail driven movement, right? Um, There's actually great report by Glassnode. One thing you mentioned, Dan, is the distribution of Bitcoin ownership. There is a common misconception that Bitcoin is owned predominantly by these people we call whales who own a lot of Bitcoin. That's actually not true. Over the last 12 years, the Gini coefficient or the wealth distribution of Bitcoin has dispersed significantly. So there's a research firm called Glassnode that just put out a great report on this. And what they found is there's actually fairly normalized distribution in terms of Bitcoin ownership and and concentration. And the great thing is, as the price goes up as a result of these manias or bubbles or these cycles, whatever you want to call them, that are really just part of what Carlotta Perez described in her book around sort of technological innovation and bubbles in capital markets, right? This is this is just a pattern, like the new hot thing emerges, people pile capital into it. it's actually not as developed as people think it is, people lose money. And then the cycle just repeats ad nauseum. We do this in every asset class. Right. Um, so Bitcoin's not unique here. But I think what we are seeing now is, um, you know, this this 
view of capital markets. And I want to sort of move this to a conversation around DeFi and what's happening more broadly here. There is this really interesting, again, you'll just go back to the politics of this. We've never really thought about access to markets or financial censorship because the five of us have probably never really experienced it in our lives. But if I had the misfortune of being born in Iran or in Venezuela or in North Korea or in Sri Lanka, I live in a totally different reality. And financial censorship is the number one form of violence in our world today. It's not physical violence. And financial censorship is only increasing. And part of this is deplatforming, right? Like, if people don't like what you're doing, not only do you get deplatformed on social media, right? Like people will cancel your bank accounts. People will take away your ability to access your capital, to bank, to borrow money. But Melta, don't you, I mean, listen, sometimes I, I agree with everything you're saying, but I think sometimes in the bit, in the crypto community, we get too far down into this, you know, we're going to make the world a better place and we're going to, you know, everybody's oppressed and we're the ones that are freeing everybody, which I think is a great goal. Don't get me wrong. I think that is a noble and tremendous goal, but I think we'd be better served as I may, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I would rather see us talk about what this is actually going to do. The one app that's going to change things, right? Like for people at home today, what is DeFi going to do for them, right? Casino open 24 seven, casino open 24 seven, instead of waiting for my alarm at nine 30, I can trade anytime, anywhere, anything I want. Casino open. But is it a casino or just, or is it a great word casino financial system? 9.30 to 4 p.m. used to be my trading hours, Monday through Friday. Now I take, trade 24-7, 365, and I don't need a bank to do it or a right, BK, Before we get out of here, uh, it's interesting. So BK mentioned before, this is a fast... First of all, Meltem said that a Satoshi coin is worth like 0.02 cents. So effectively, I am the Satoshi coin of this conversation, number one. Number two, BK mentioned something. You know, you, you mentioned gold, you buy gold, nobody bats an eye. You mentioned Bitcoin, everybody freaks out. Reminds me of that scene in Jaws. BK knows what I'm talking about when they're on the beach and the mayor says, you say Barracuda, nobody says a word. You say Great White Shark, you have a panic on the 4th of July. And that's what we're seeing here. But with panic comes the other side. Before we get out of here, BK, what do you think is the existential risk to the entire story we've talked 45 minutes about? Oh, it is without question the government pushback that you're going, that you will inevitably at some point get. Um, governments, you know, have have held money as their power source for centuries. Um, so I don't think that governments are going to just roll over and say, "Hey, by the way, Bitcoin's the new reserve currency." But I would also say that the the point between here and there is pretty far away. And with punk companies like Mastercard and Tesla and all of these big companies in, you start to move further and further away from that full existential risk. Meltem, close us out. I mean, what's left to say at this point? I don't agree with BK. I'm not as concerned about the existential threat of regulation. Maybe from an investment perspective, it'll have a temporary dampening effect on price because it constrains the ability for cash US dollars to flow into the Bitcoin ecosystem. But at this point, what we've done in the last 11 years, which I think is truly profound, is we have developed a piece of open source software that supports trillions of dollars in transactions and billions of dollars in value. We have built a network of computers around the world that have the power of all the supercomputers in the world combined that provides security to Bitcoin as an asset. And we have built 
thousands of companies and applications and products and services that allow people to engage with this new form of money, Bitcoin. We already live in a multipolar currency world. We just haven't realized it yet. And the next frontier is cyberspace. And for the first time in my life, I have the option of choosing what system I want to participate in instead of being constrained by where I was born and in what physical jurisdiction I live. That is profoundly exciting. There's so many like tangents. And once your brain starts sort of going through this concept of what it means to be a citizen of cyberspace, it's pretty wild, pretty fast. But this future is here. Um, It's been built. It's really robust. It's really resilient. And we have a bunch of people now who have a lot of capital who are very ideologically motivated to build really amazing, profound, interesting, fun, memeable, scary, weird things. And I'm here for it. That's what I'm going to be doing. I got one last question before I turn it over to Guy. And maybe you guys are already working on a product uh, for this. But if my digital wallet gets broken into and I lose $250,000, I have no one to go to. If my bank account gets broken into, I have the FDIC and the SIPC, whatever. Again, I'm going to sound like a old guy who doesn't get it. I just want to know the question that would add a confidence. Is there going to be a product that is going to enable us to have some insurance on this digital wallet? It's already there. I mean, it's it already exists. Uh, Coinbase, Fidelity, Gemini, they'll all hold your Bitcoin for you. I mean, you have some other risks with that. But, you know, that's the customer service question that I used to get all the time is that where who do I call for customer service? If you have let somebody else hold your Bitcoin, you got all the customer service in the world. But there's already an insurance product in the market. There's a product called Breach that was built by an insurance executive. Um, and again, with the OCC saying that banks could custody Bitcoin, I think it's very likely in the next year or two that FDIC and CIPIC will be extended to include Bitcoin coverage as well. Um, Breach is working on this. It's a cybersecurity and asset insurance product. And I think, again, like we haven't really talked about cybersecurity risk, but as we all know, cybersecurity insurance is becoming increasingly important in the financial services sector as more of it gets digitized. So um, there are some really cool entrepreneurs working on some really great products that will actually, um, you know, beyond the Lloyds of London policies that most people have that I don't think you could actually cash in if you wanted to. I do think we'll see schemes like FDIC and CIPIC extend to digital currency through these innovative new insurance product constructions. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation and we'd love to have the both of you back because I think we could go another couple hours with this. But time, time is a commodity as well, as you know, and maybe I was around when they were actually trading time. But thank you, Melton Demirs. Thank you, Brian Kelly, on behalf of Danny Moses and Dan Nathan. And thank you, folks, for listening to the podcast. Subscribe in the podcast stores to On The Tape. Follow us on Twitter, On The Tape Pod. And you know what, folks? We'll see you next week. Yeah.